This episode is sponsored by Relist.com, a cross-posting software solution designed to help e-commerce sellers create listings that are both efficient and accurate for multiple online marketplaces. Use the code DINA, that's D-I-N-A, to get 30 days free plus 50% off of a scanner and printer combo when you sign up on the Getting Started page. Visit Relist.com, that's R-E-L-Y-S-T.com to learn more. Too much clothing, not enough justice, too often a consumer, so rarely a human. I'm reading these words from an Instagram bio of one of my favorite Instagram accounts, The Ore is Present. The Ore Foundation is a U.S. and Ghana-based nonprofit working at the intersection of environmental justice, education, and fashion development. Today, we're having a conversation with the co-founder of The Ore Foundation, Liz Ricketts. Liz is also an educator, designer, and an amateur hemp farmer. The Ore has been working between the two countries for over a decade and has spent the last five years delving into the, quote, afterlife of clothing within the context of Kanamanto secondhand clothing market in Accra, Ghana. This is one of the largest secondhand markets in the world, and this is where many of the global north's unwanted clothes are set. So in 2016, the Orr Foundation launched a multimedia research project called Dead White Man's Clothes to learn more about how the secondhand clothing trade functions and to better understand the environmental, social, and economic implications of this industry in Ghana. Today, we chat with Liz to learn more about the Orr Foundation's research project and initiatives. We also explore the serious implications that overconsumption and overproduction has within the fashion industry. And we talk about what really happens to our clothes after we've dropped them off at a donation center. Keep listening for a new episode from Thanks, It's Thrifted with Dina and Shannon. Welcome, Liz. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Dina. It's so nice to be here. So uh, my co-host Shannon could not be with us today. She's actually attending a conference. She's a high school teacher, so it was kind of hard for her to to get out of that one. So she was sad to miss it. But I, as I mentioned, am such a huge fan of your work. I actually came across your work. I was thrifting one day, and I noticed all these t-shirts on the rack, and I thought, man, this would be a really good podcast episode. I cannot believe how many single-use t-shirts we produce and consume. I kept thinking to myself, like, who's buying this stuff? Like, I certainly would never be able to get through this many t-shirts. And so I started doing a little bit of research on kind of the production and how much we consume t-shirts. And I came across one of your Instagram posts on the single-use t-shirt issues and the impact of single-use t-shirts. And I started binge reading your content, and I've just been following along ever since. And all of your research from that one post uh, really helped inform one of our episodes and about about the long-term impacts of single-use t-shirts and the far-reaching impacts of them. Makes me so happy. Yes. I have, I'm on a personal mission to end single-use t-shirts. <laughs> I used to joke with my students that I would be happy if that's what it said on my gravestone. <laughs> You eradicated single-use t-shirts. Well, you're doing great work. <laughs> They're just so unnecessary. I Some know. of them are pretty funny, though. They are. So you've spent the last several years researching and working with individuals in the secondhand clothing trade in Accra, Ghana, where more secondhand clothes are imported than any other country on Earth. And your multimedia project was titled Dead White Man's Clothes. So can you tell us a little bit more about how this all started and where the name came from? So 
how it all started. I mean, my my background is in fashion, in design, and in styling. And I first came to Ghana to work on a fair trade fashion company. And within the first three days of coming here, I went to Kansamanto and honestly was quite shocked. I wasn't capable at that time to understand everything that Kansamanto is. All I could see was the sheer quantity of stuff. You know, walking on top of clothing, piles of clothing, people sitting on piles, like carrying piles, clothing flying across the aisleways. And as someone who'd worked in the fashion industry and always really wondered, you know, what happens to our clothing when we're quote unquote done with it, it was a very sobering moment to realize, you know, that the thing that I have studied and, and this industry that I do still have a lot of love for, so much of it is just weight that's being like shuffled around the world and that's how it yeah kind of broke my heart and from that moment onward we were going to the market quite frequently because we were upcycling things from the market that's why I had gone in the first place and we were meeting traders and we were hearing directly from them you know that the the industry was changing that they were no longer able to make very much money that they no longer felt that it was a very dignified job and that the quality of the clothing was going down. And this was from 2011 to 2015. And within that same time, of course, um, was a very important time for the sustainability movement in the global north. And we were, you know, attending conferences and we were hearing the secondhand clothing trade being positioned as an inherently positive thing and as an essential component of the circular economy, which I'm not saying it's not, but there wasn't the perspective from the receiver's end. There wasn't really a level of nuance. And also for me, I had come to understand that Secondhand isn't secondhand. It's not just the secondary market. It's not just thrift. It's not these. It's it's the primary supply chain for over half of the planet. This is how most of the humans on our planet clothe themselves. And so the fact that we don't talk about it as a supply chain and we don't have any of the same critical sort of questions and dialogue around, you know, the labor that's involved and the environmental um, consequences of it was really shocking to me. And that's why we decided to launch the Dead White Man's Clothes Project, because we felt like those nuances and that perspective weren't really being shared. And we hadn't previously understood the waste crisis to the level that we do now, but the Dead White Men's Clothes Project has brought that to the forefront, of course, of our understanding and the work that we do. And the name Dead White Men's Clothes comes from the name that Ghanaians use for secondhand clothing. It's Obruni Wawu, which translates to the white man has died clothes. And the term comes from the fact that when so much clothing initially started being sent to Ghana, people assumed that it must have been the clothing of dead foreigners because why else would there be so much excess? And when the clothing initially was coming, it was higher quality. It was, you know, better constructed. Most of it was cotton. The materials were different. And so that's where the name comes from, which I think is very profound because it signals that excess was not an indigenous concept and it helps to remind us that 
excess is something that has to be taught and that we've all been taught at some point in life. And therefore, it's something that we can unlearn. And we use the name Dead White Man's Clothes for that reason. And also because, frankly, we believe that there needs to be more direct conversation about greed and (laughs) the relationship between greed and waste. You know, greed and waste are two sides of the same destructive path and often we fall into the trap of trying to tackle the waste crisis without tackling behavior and the psychology that's driving it. And I think that, you know, there's a handful of people that are really benefiting from the current industry. Like there are not that many people who are actually winning in this situation. And I believe that we need to do more to you know, reach those people and to change the way that they're behaving and the actions that they're taking. So I'd like to start then with the cycle of donated clothing in the global north. I think this will help paint a picture of the direct connection and impact it has to um, a lot of your work and what's happening in Accra. One of the things that we do here on the podcast and on the blog and everything, I've been doing this for 12 years, not podcasting, I've been doing that for three, but I've been blogging about secondhand for 12 years now. And the idea is to promote secondhand as a lifestyle, put secondhand first. There's already so much in circulation. There's really no need for new clothes. And so as part of that, through my platform, I've collaborated with a lot of thrift stores, a lot of local thrift stores to help tell that story and, and, and show that you can find really cool things at thrift stores. So because of that, one of the things I always like to say is if you can ever experience and go see the back room of a thrift store, do it because it. (laughs) it really helps paint a picture of how much we produce and consume and discard and how really thrift stores couldn't possibly sell all of the things that they receive. And so could you outline the typical process for us of what happens to our clothes when we donate them here in the global north? Yeah, no, I love everything that you just said. And I think it's, it's, you know, for those of us who have seen the back end, sometimes it can be a little frustrating because it's like, it's very obvious once you do see it, (laughs) what's going on. Um, But essentially, when we donate clothing in the United States, it's different in different countries, but most people will donate it directly to a charity. Some will put it into, you know, a quote unquote recycling bin. Basically, those things get sorted for quality and for relevance by season. Some things get hung if they're deemed, you know, higher quality or right for the time and for the community that the, the store is in. Um, but even off the bat, a lot of the clothing will go directly to, you know, the back of the house to be sorted and sent off um, for exports. And what of the things that are hung on the rack, essentially 10 to 20 percent only will be sold within that community. And then the rest of it will, you know, maybe go through a few cycles of going on sale or being bundled up and offered, you know, that you buy 10, 10 t-shirts for $10 sort of thing. Um, but eventually most of it will be bailed up. And this process looks different depending on where you are. You know, we were talking about the fact that we both have an Ohio connection. We used to work a lot with St. Vincent de Paul near Cincinnati. And one of the stores that we worked with, you know, they would bail up, you know, the thousand or 5,000 pounds, sales and they didn't do any direct exporting but they would just bail up everything mixed garments and then send it to an aggregator 
and a sorter who would then unveil the, the big massive bales and then they would sort by upwards of 350 categories based on the garment type, you know, the season, the trend, and the quality. And then from there, that's where things get bailed up specifically for exports. And so it can be your clothing when you donate it can take on a very sort of strange path. Um, because also a lot of the clothing that we donate in the United States ends up being exported to Canada, where it will be sorted and then eventually exported again to the global south. And similarly, in Europe, you have, you know, we in Ghana, when we buy bales that are were exported from the UK, we'll open them and we often find clothing that very clearly was not from the UK. Even we find stuff from the United States that has, you know, charity tags from Goodwill in the U.S. and also then, you know, clothing from across Europe, et cetera. So it's not a straightforward path. I wish it was a little easier to, to explain to people, but I think it's far more complicated than you probably imagine. And your clothing is going to touch, you know, many, many, many hands and be evaluated many times mm -hmm. before it's going to end up here in Consumanto. So by the time it gets exported to Consumanto, what's happened is that importers here will pay for a container of bales. The container can cost anywhere from, you know, $15,000 to $45,000 a piece, depending on the amount of bales and the quality of them that's inside. The importer will bring them to the importer side of Consumanto, the containers, and they will unload the container on Thursdays. Thursdays is market day for the importers. And so each container can have up to 400, sometimes more bales on them. Each bale weighs around 120 to 200 pounds. And each bale is, again, a very specific garment type. So it's, you know, men's suits from the United States, ladies' tops from the UK, etc. And they each have a specific price based off of the garment type and the quality that the bale is supposed to be. Retailers from Consumanto, they will go on Thursdays and buy the bales from the importers. And the most important thing for people to understand is that these bales are um, not the way that we buy clothes, right? You know, not even the way that we thrift clothes where we get to see exactly what the item is, we get to touch it, we get to see what the size is. Or if you're a consumer in the United States, you can easily go online, you can buy three sizes of the same garment, you know, have them delivered to you, try them on, return what doesn't fit, get a full refund, etc. Here in Consumanto, retailers are buying these bales without any idea really of what's inside because it's compressed, it's wrapped in opaque plastic. All they can do is kind of see the patterns and the colors that are on the outside of the bale and hope that's indicative of what's on the inside of the bale. And this is really important because, you know, they're not buying a few garments and they're not cheap. The bales can cost anywhere from $75 to $500 a piece, and they can contain anywhere from 50 garments for like men's suits to a thousand garments for children's wear. So they're buying a lot of clothing on trust. And the retailers call it a gambling business 
for this reason. A lot of them take out loans to purchase the bales. And if they open the bale and it's bad quality, they have no way of returning it. They can't return it to the importer and they can't re return it to the exporter or to anyone in the global north. And so they're just stuck dealing with whatever has come in that bale. And the retailers, they open these bales on Wednesdays and Saturdays. And it's a very tense time in the market because of this situation where they really don't know what they're going to get. And most of them will come very early, you know, five, six in the morning, and they'll get their bail and they'll pray before they open it. They'll cut the wires on outside the bail and they unfold the plastic and they immediately start sorting the contents into four piles, which they call selection. And first selection is typically only 18%. It's actually decreasing, unfortunately, with around 18% of the average bale. And those are the things that look like they've never really been worn. You know, there's no visible stains on them. Maybe they still have the tags, but they don't have to. Um, maybe it's a popular brand, but honestly, most of the retailers in Consumento don't pay so much attention to the brands. It's not a big selling point. And then the third selection, that makes up an average of 46% of the average bail. And that's the majority of things that we donate, unfortunately. You know, that's the stuff. Maybe it's a T-shirt we wore to paint our house. And we, you know, touched our shirt with our hand that had paint on it. And then, oh, now we're going to donate it. Or we've worn it a lot of times and the collar is stretched out. Or there's a little, you know, a button came off and we don't know how to repair it. Those are the things that end up in third selection. And that's a majority of the bail. And the challenge is that the retailers need to make 70 to 90 percent of their money back off of first selection alone, off of that 18%, which is increasingly difficult for them to do. And so what we found is that less than 20% of them are actually making a profit and most of them are working offsets and they're basically trapped in a debt cycle. So a common misconception is that the clothing then is shipped from the North or United States to places like Accra because there's a demand. And I've heard you say that it's actually supply driven. So can you talk more a little bit about that? Yeah. So, I mean, people in Ghana are buying the clothes. But I think that A, this language of supply and demand is something that we really need to be challenging generally within the fashion industry. Because brands use it constantly. We've seen this time and time again where brands will say, well, we would do things better if there was demand for it, or we would stop. We only produce so much clothing because there's demand for it. Um, but the truth is, is that waste is built into the business model of fashion. Brands overproduce intentionally by 20 to 40% in terms of each skew that they're producing. And that's built into the business model. And so that there's no demand for that already off the bat, right? And so the fashion industry is oversupplied. And then when it comes to the secondhand trade, the reason that I say that it's supply driven is because of the power dynamics, essentially. You know, the importers and retailers here in Santa they don't 
they don't get to request what they want. They don't get to wake up one day and say, oh, I, I would like to sell that thing. I like the look of this top. You know, I'm going to go online and just add to cart and like make my bail exactly the way I want it, right? They have to, they can only purchase what people in the global north decide to buy, what mm -hmm. people decide to wear, and what they decide to donate. And then also they can only purchase what doesn't get, you know, shifted or um, sold in the global north. And I think that power dynamic is very, very important. And even in the way that the packing lists are done, it's, it's different per importer and exporter, but a lot of the importers here will tell us, you know, for them to have any say over the contents of a container, they have to purchase a certain amount of children's wear, for instance, or they have to purchase a certain amount of t-shirts. And then they always have to accept a certain level of waste. So on each container, they might receive bales that are outright trash, you know, things that are coming directly from the bins where people, a lot of times people throw chip bags and bottles and, you know, things get molded and companies in the global north will bail those up and send them on the container and then people here have to deal with it. Or it could be waste in the form of, you know, winter coats. And Ghana's on the equator, so <laughs> people here you know, there are some people selling winter coats for when people are traveling, um, but they certainly don't need a lot of them. And that's a lot of what will go to waste. And so for me, it's a power dynamic that's pretty undeniable. You know, people here don't have a lot of choice over what they're receiving. And there's also no level of reciprocity or, or dialogue. You know, that's mm -hmm. the thing that I think really needs to be discussed is that the secondhand industry in the global north has controlled the narrative this entire time and been able to rebrand what the trade represents it's charity then it's diversion then it's recycling now it's circular <laughs> but no one in Kanzamanzo, like the very people who are laboring in service of those supposed missions have ever heard of those terms. Like no one in Kanzamanzo knows what the circular economy is. They certainly have never heard that they're, they're part of recycling. And there's no dialogue back and forth, right? And, and it's just absurd, you know, from many levels. A, because people in Kanzamanzo are the ones doing the work, so they should be leading the conversation and educating people on, on what really is going on. But B, also because if the industry in the global north wants things to be recirculated, then there should be conversation about that. It's like people are expecting consumenta retailers to show up for a job that they didn't even know that they had. And then they're blaming them <laughs> for not doing a good job. Yeah. So backwards. what happens then to this waste? Yeah. So just so people have an idea, you know, of how much it's Contamanto sees 15 million garments a week and 40% lead as waste. So around 6 million garments. Well, first of all, it's important to understand that Contamanto represents the single largest consolidated source of waste for all of Accra, which is pretty, um, again, shocking when you consider that it's not, you know, Ghana's waste. And it's handled in two ways. 
So it's handled formally and it's handled informally. And previously, the local government here in Accra was picking up some of the waste from Consumanto and taking it to a sanitary landfill. But that landfill overflowed um, in large part due to the textile waste. And it caught fire and exploded and it's no longer active. And so Accra actually currently doesn't have a single sanitary landfill to send any of its waste to. And so there is still a truck that picks up some of the waste, but it's picking up even less than it did before. And it's taking it to a landfill that's over an hour drive, sometimes two, three hours, depending on what time you leave the city. And so it's quite far. That is not, it's not a sanitary landfill. It's a, you know, informal dump that's just being managed by the government. But that only makes up a small percentage of the waste. Most of the waste will be handled informally, which means that there's burn piles throughout the market. So some of the waste is just, you know, piled up, especially along the railroad and lit on fire, which is extremely toxic. And then a lot of it will be picked up by informal waste pickers and taken to informal dump sites where a lot of across most vulnerable people live, where again, a lot of this waste is managed by a burning because there's no other way to reduce the, the volume of waste than to burn it. And a lot of the waste also gets swept into the open gutter system here in Accra, where it will eventually wash out to the sea. And we're finding, you know, millions of garments on the beach here. And what's really scary is that the clothing waste is now coming from two directions. So we have currently, we have a, a beach monitoring team of 10 individuals who live along the coast of Accra who all have a section of the beach and they monitor it weekly and report back on the amount of waste that they're seeing and, you know, changes in the community, weather and patterns, things like that. And what we've seen increasingly over the last two years is that you have clothing waste coming into the ocean from the sewer system. But now because the clothing waste is very heavy, by the time it makes its way to sea, the clothing has wrapped around itself. We call them tentacles. It's like wrapped around itself. It's entangled a bunch of other things in it, you know, plastic, metal, soaked up a bunch of industrial and human excrements. They're heavy objects. They're mm -hmm. some, you know, three feet to 30 feet. They're massive and they're sinking. So a lot of them, when they make their way through the ocean, they're sinking to the sea floor. And then when there's a storm or with changing currents, the clothing is now coming up from the bottom of the ocean onto the beach. So you have clothing coming from two directions. You have clothing coming in from the sewer system and coming up <laughs> from the bottom of the ocean. And it was just on the beach when was it? on Monday was the last time I was there and there was a gentleman who has lived along the beach for um, several decades and he was saying, you know, how frustrating it is. He's like, I don't know where it's coming from, but we keep trying to throw these things back and the ocean just sits them out and throwing them back and they're coming back. And he has built, he's used the clothing waste and some sand to build a wall in front of his house because he's so tired of the clothing waste 
coming into his home. This is this is remarkable. And like you said, that waste isn't even theirs. That just no. really puts things into perspective. So a common response to that then is, well, then they should just refuse it. What happens if these global yeah. markets refuse the clothing? Yeah, I understand. I mean, I think jobs. So, I mean, there's two levels of answers I will give. One is the just a straightforward practical, which is that Contamanto represents 30,000 jobs. Um, it's massive. There are not 30,000 jobs for people to transition into, in part because the secondhand clothing trade has decimated the local textile industry. And so until there are those opportunities, it's a very difficult argument um, because you would just be making a lot of people very vulnerable. And in terms of why individuals in the market aren't you know, speaking up about it, it's again because they're in debt. Most of the retailers who are most impacted by this, they're trying to pay off loans, you know, to multiple banks or to people in the market. And they're worried about, they're in survival mode, you know, they're worried about trying to put food on the table. They don't have the headspace and the comfort to think strategically about how to get out of it in the long term. The only way that they can see to try to get out of debt is to buy more clothes to try to sell themselves out of debt because mm-hmm. that's the only avenue that they have um, currently. And then I would also say like just in, in terms of that question, you know, we've been doing this work for a long time and it's always really interesting because People always ask about, you know, why doesn't Ghana just ban the the importation of secondhand clothing? But no one ever asks why the United States doesn't ban the exportation of clothing. And I think we really need to look at that, look hard at that, because there's a lot of colonial mythology and white supremacy that plays into how this industry works in general and the fact that, you know, I think a lot of people, when they learn about our work, they feel lied to and they feel like they were misled. But I also think we need to take responsibility and recognize that maybe we didn't ask questions. Maybe we didn't ask for the truth also. I think it's on both sides because there's there's been a lot of oversimplification, but there's also been a lot of willful ignorance, I believe, where people are happy, you know, to pass off their things and, and hope that it does good. And I think it's the same with the conversation around the ban, where it's very easy to suggest that something would be simple in Ghana, but if it would not be simple by any stretch of the imagination to ban exports from the United States. You know, it's also a big industry in the United States in terms of jobs and there would be many, 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 many actions and, you know, sort of infrastructure change that would need to take place to make that possible. So it's complicated. Yeah. Essentially. Can you talk a little bit about the history, like how this trade even started? Yeah. The secondhand clothing trade has existed in different forms in Nana um, since, you know, before Nana got its independence in 1957. But the roots of it really stem back to colonial dress codes. So under colonialism, the 
Ghanaians were expected to conform to professional dress codes as prescribed by the British to enter certain rooms, to go to certain schools. They used education and religion specifically to impose a lot of these cultural norms. And that creates an artificial demand. Again, there's that question of like, what really is demand? You know, if mm-hmm. people are trying to survive and navigate these oppressive rules, then is that really demand that they're putting on a suit or is it them trying to survive? Um, and it was these dress codes that created the demand for Western style clothing. And under colonialism, the British had already kind of created some of the trade because they were bringing um, their hand-me-downs, their secondhand clothing. And then also they would actually use their hand-me-downs as a form of compensation uh, with the Ghanaians who were employed in their households, which I think is pretty disgusting. Mm -hmm. But So from there, then Ghana gains its independence in 1957. And this is the same time that, you know, fast fashion is really taking off in the United States and in Europe. And so there's more clothing than ever before. Companies in the global north are looking for an outlet for this excess so that consumers will continue to buy more because, of course, we're not going to continue to buy clothing if our closets are full and we have to confront that waste ourselves. And so there were several companies, you know, that we found documented in the Ghana Trade or the Ghana Trade Commission archives that talk about how these companies from the United States specifically were coming to Ghana looking for trade opportunities. And that's very important for people to understand that this is always positioned as a for-profit opportunity that was about moving the excess from the United States to Ghana so that we could stimulate more consumption in the United States. And what's happening in Ghana at that time is that, of course, it's right after independence. And because of the colonial dress codes, again, there was this, um, there were these remnants, essentially, where people valued Western style clothing more than they valued local clothing to a certain mm-hmm. degree. And they also needed it as a tool to navigate, you know, sort of boundaries. And so you had people who were ready to receive the oversupply from the global north. But even then, it was quite, um, it wasn't what it was today. You know, the <laughs> fast fashion wasn't what it was today. The supply wasn't what it was today. The quality of the clothing was much better. Really, a lot of the secondhand market changed into what we have today in the 80s with structural adjustment policies that decimated a lot of the local industries, the local textile industry. And that's when Ghana was no longer able to make enough clothing to satisfy the local demand for clothing. And so it created a gap that needed to be filled by the secondhand clothing trade. And that's when you started seeing just a flood of like cheaper clothing coming into the country. Mm-hmm. And then it's just set up from mm-hmm. there. Charity stores, you mentioned uh, St. Vincent de Paul and stores like that, they play a role, I believe, in reducing textile waste, right? Like they, um, are a piece of that puzzle. 
In addition, they also provide uh, local programming for local communities. A lot of thrift stores recently have been getting some criticism because of the role that they play in this kind of what you call waste management process and exploitation of clothing. And I've been thinking a lot about this, and I I don't know what the answer is. You know, what's the alternative for them? You know, what other role could they play? Because it costs a thrift store a lot of money to sort, process, sell, overhead, employees, salaries. I mean, it's not a free process. And they receive a lot of, honestly, trash, right? Like we often donate things that are on their last leg that they can't even put on the sales floor. They can't even put it at the outlet store. And so it's an expensive process for them to dispose of a lot of these things and for the things that they aren't disposing of, the things that they're actually processing. So what's the alternative? What role can they play? What do they do about that? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) I think it's very important that people yeah, hear everything that you just said because, I, again, it's easy to blame someone else and it's easy to put a lot of the blame on the charities and the secondhand clothing economy in the global north. But for me, they're not the problem. I think that most citizens are completely unaware of the labor and the effort that is involved in the secondhand supply chain. And I think the expectation that any of that should happen for free or that, you know, free should somehow be associated with charity is very interesting. And I I also, for me, something that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about is just how many people give to a system that they don't actually invest in. You know, most people in the United States will donate the old so they can buy the new. But what that means is that you're giving into a system that you're calling charity, but then you yourself are not buying anything from that system. And it's the sale of the clothes that's on the charity. It's not just you giving it. Like, yeah, you just handing over your stuff doesn't do anything for the charity. And yes. as you said, it takes a lot of work to sort it and um, hang it up and merchandise it and everything. And most of these charities are really underfunded. Mm-hmm. I think that the idea of, you know, subsidizing like social welfare programs with the sale of clothing is flawed generally. Like I don't, you know, think that that's something we should continue to expect of these charities and of, of these organizations in general. But I think so much of it is just trying to do more locally. A, I think the brands need to be investing a lot more in these companies to turn the clothing around. Essentially, what we need is we need the clothing charities and the thrift stores in the global north to look a lot more like Contamanto. Because Contamanto isn't just a resale hub. It's not just a you know retail environment. It's also a factory, like it's also a design studio. <laughs> there's, you know, designers there, there's screen printers, there's cobblers, there's people mending clothes, there's people washing clothes, there's people re-dyeing things, there's people tailoring and refitting things, and then there's people completely upcycling things and turning them into completely new objects. And that's what we need every thrift store environment to be because a lot of the clothing that ends up in Ghana that's lower quality, it doesn't need to go to waste. A lot of it could be upcycled or recontextualized in some way, but it just takes 
the right investments and the right skills for people to do that. And these thrift stores are too under-resourced to do it. And then also we have to face the fact that the United States and a lot of other countries in the global north don't have the skills that Continental has. You know, this is one thing that really drives me nuts with the conversation around circularity is that everyone loves to talk about fiber to fiber recycling. And yes, I believe we need fiber to fiber recycling. But if we come up with a hundred new ways to recycle clothing and still no one in the United States knows how to attach a button back on their shirt after it falls off. Like we have the same problem. Yeah. We have the same problem. Sewing is also a technology. I don't know how everyone forgot this, but sewing is also a technology. And it's pretty cool and it's pretty enjoyable. And I think we, we need to invest in these things like as yeah. a community in the global north and also it will naturally slow down consumption because it's more meaningful like it's not just a transaction and that's something too that needs to be looked at in these conversations is the quality of jobs that are being created and what drives consumption you know to be very frank like i believe that a lot of people that I know and people in the global north over consume because they have bullshit jobs that they're not happy with. They're staring at a screen all day, moving stuff around, like unsure of the value that they have. And it's depressing. Wow. And they consume to try to, you know, bring some meaning into their lives. And I think, you know, how many people are going to want to work at a chemical recycling plant? Like not that many people. It's yeah. not going to necessarily be a fun, you know, enjoyable job. But I think a lot of people, if they were, you know, taught, would enjoy working at a, you know, upcycling hub or, you know, doing dyeing. Like there's a lot of joy that can come from those activities. When I was teaching in Cincinnati, um, I started the Sustainable Fashion Initiative at the University of Cincinnati with students. And we did a lot of these activities within St. Vincent de Paul. So we would do like upcycling pop-ups and screen printing pop-ups. And um, it was so much fun. And the people, you know, you didn't have to announce that it was going on. You just show up and people are there shopping and people who are working in the first store. Like people really, really, really got into it. Yeah. And I think we're missing out on yeah, so much of what's possible with these materials. This episode is brought to you by Relist.com, a web-based software that allows e-commerce sellers and shops to list their items across multiple platforms at once. So last year when I decided it was time to get serious and to level up my e-commerce shop, I knew it was time to start exploring cross-posting softwares. And Relist has been a game changer for me. I have been able to save hours of my time listening to my Shopify and eBay platforms at once. I'm excited to partner with Relist to offer listeners 30 days free plus 50% off of a scanner and printer combo. Use the code DINA, that's D-I-N-A, when you sign up on their Getting Started page. Start at Relist.com, that's R-E-L-Y-S-T.com to learn more. You mentioned technology. How has technology changed the secondhand trade landscape in Accra? So about a month ago, we hosted a conversation here 
on solidarity within the resale economy locally, which was about bringing together the consumer retailers and online resellers, because currently there's really not a lot of collaboration or dialogue between the two. And I think you see the same thing happen here as you see in the United States or in the global north, where people rebrand secondhand as thrift or as vintage, or you know, it's using a different language to signal a different value. And a lot of the online resellers here don't claim that they get their things from Consumanto because Consumanto has a stigma mm-hmm. around it um, for not being modern, you know, for for being secondhand from the global north or being dirty, things like that. Um, but there is a fairly thriving like online resale economy here with a lot of young people just running you know stores off of their instagram basically and facebook i don't think there's anyone sort of who tried to launch a platform but something that we're trying to do and, and kind of the purpose of that conversation is to to build solidarity between the two groups and to think about business models that could exist in Kansamanta as well as outside mm-hmm. so can we work with online resellers to create a photo studio in Consumanto where they can take some of the items that they can curate and they can find a market for that the retailers can't find a market for. And can they shoot them in Consumanto? We could market them, you know, as an organization and then they could split profits, you know, with the retailer to help with the debt issue. I think that profit sharing is very, very important when it comes to the secondhand clothing trade in general, because there is, I mean, classism is seeped into everything about mm-hmm. secondhand. And it is very easy for people with various means of privilege, just being younger, you mm-hmm. know, um, having access to technology. Yeah. To flip things and to sell them for a lot more in a way that a retailer in Consumanto never could or wouldn't know how. Yeah. And so we're trying to facilitate that kind of skill sharing and dialogue. I've been in the thrifting game for a long time and the landscape has changed so much. The way we talk about it, the way we approach it, the names we give it. Secondhand is definitely having a moment right now, and a lot of brands are listening. And we've seen an increase in take-back programs and different types of collaborations. They'll collaborate with platforms like ThreadUp. However, a lot of these take-back programs have been criticized for sort of greenwashing or not slowing down their production. So I wondered if you could talk more about that and kind of the impact it has on the secondhand trade and, and donation cycle. Yeah, this is where I have a problem. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> because, yeah, so this is where I have a problem because I think that, you know, if, if you're donating your clothes to a, a charity or if you're, you know, swapping or you're selling with a small, you know, thrift store in your community, you're supporting jobs in your community, you are, there is some value that stays in your community. When you give clothing back to a brand through a retailer take-back scheme, none of that value stays in a community. That brand is not accountable to any community. They're not accountable to anyone. They are just accountable to profit. That is it. And these take-back schemes, they're different. You know, there are some small brands, independent brands that I'm not talking about. Like, this this doesn't apply to them. I'm talking about the big brands. I'm talking about H&M the brands that, you know, have the bins in their stores that they 
bring in your clothes and it'll be recycled, which, you know, the use of that word is so misleading. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they give you more money, like a discount to shop more clothes. So, of course, that's not helping the problem. But most of that clothing that you donate to those bins will end up being exported. And for me, the most upsetting part of all of this is, you know, H&M makes money off of that. Mm-hmm. So H&M is one of the, you know, brands that we most find on the beach here and in the dump sites here. Like they are, of course, one of the main culprits of overproduction and of greenwashing, which I call delusion marketing mm-hmm. um, and fast fashion in general. And the fact that they're being paid to pollute instead of paying to pollute, like instead of being held accountable, they're actually being paid to collect this clothing and export it to cause more problems. is so infuriating. Mm-hmm. But the other, the larger, more theoretical concern that I have outside of my complete distrust for Asian specifically is that waste should not be free. Clothing, we shouldn't, I think that, again, if you're giving your clothing to a charity, you're giving it away for free because you want it to have some value within your community, to have some social value. Why would we give our clothing back for free to a to brands that have never paid the true cost of the thing in the first place? Like, they're the only people in the entire equation of the supply chain that haven't paid the true cost. Like even you as a consumer has paid more of the true cost than they have. So why would you give these resources back to them for free? And for me, it's very concerning in terms of the direction that it's headed because waste is being treated as a free or like a neutral resource. But yeah, a lot of a lot of brands are trying to make the to create circular products that are as cheap or cheaper than linear products. And the way that they're doing that is by getting the resources, which is the waste, for free. And that's not going to turn out so well. (laughs) And they've already figured it out, you know, on the pre-consumer side, because they can go to the factories where they're working and they can say, well, we own this waste because we paid for, you know, the materials that you're using. So you need to sweep up all the scraps and then we can take it to a recycler, et cetera. Um, But they haven't yet really figured it out on the post-consumer side, because of course it's a lot harder. They have to convince you to give your stuff back to them. But I just really don't, see why we would want to do that. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I read on your website, I wanted to read it back to you. Overconsumption is not a burden carried entirely by the consumer. Overproduction is not a burden carried entirely by the producer. These phenomena are interconnected and affect all of us regardless of our role or our position in the global north or south. And it's just such an eye-opening piece because, I mean, from the fast fashion brands like you mentioned, H&M and Forever 21, to the consumer, to the thrift stores, the textile recyclers, we are all a link in that chain. And I wondered if you can just elaborate a little bit more on that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things I could say. Like, There's many levels. But I think for me, the thing that I'm increasingly like most interested in is the psychology of excess mm-hmm. and how 
the length to which all of us brands, consumers, people in general will go to deny that there's too much of something. And I think it's because we're afraid of the fact that if we admit that there's too much of something, then we have to define what enough is. And we have to define what enough is for us as individuals, for an industry, for you know, a particular aspect of the trade. And I think that can be really scary in a society that espouses like limitlessness as being successful, you know, and and always growing, limitless growth, limit, limitless evolution, personal evolution, you know, having a million jobs, never stopping working, never really retiring. It's like it's counterproductive to everything the way that we live and everything that we believe about our purpose. Um, and I also think, let me tell it with a specific story. So last year when there was, with the pay up campaign, I, I, again, I used to teach design and I also worked in the fashion industry. I know a lot of people who work in, for the brands um, that were, you know, on the pay up list. And, I was just talking to a lot of people and I was, um, you know, started talking on Instagram and so my Instagram stories based off of the conversations I was having one-on-one -on -one with people, just asking people, you know, if you work in these brands, are you speaking up about this or are you not? And if not, why? And I was giving people, you know, a bunch of reasons that maybe it could be. And what was interesting was that the main reason that people weren't speaking up was because they were afraid to find out that their colleagues didn't care. They were afraid to find out that the people that they spend all day with, the people that they, you know, call friends, don't have the same values as them. And they were afraid to, to feel alone. <laughs> you know, they, that's what people were afraid of. They were afraid of feeling lonely in this work environment, which, you know, it makes up the majority of their life. And I think for me, that really speaks to what I believe so many of us are afraid of, which is that we're afraid of what we're capable of if we embrace our limits. Because if you embrace your limits and you recognize what, what you, if you embrace your limits, then you have to trust other people <laughs> like you to get anything done. Because if you recognize that there's a limit to what you can do or a limit to a system that you're in or a limit to the job that you have, then you have to rely on other people to get any real work done. And I think that, again, just our culture doesn't celebrate that. Like our culture doesn't celebrate limits and our culture does, certainly doesn't celebrate like radical trust or, you know, admitting that you can't do everything yourself and i don't know if that answers your question but for me that's something i continue to like think a lot about of just like what is the psychology behind our acceptance of waste and our acceptance of excess and why do we seem to be like so addicted to it why is it so hard for us to just say enough mm -hmm. like enough this is enough mm -hmm. i'm enough it's enough. It seems to be so impossible for us to, to do, not only as an industry, but as human beings. 
Right, right. No, that's a very, very powerful answer. Thank you. We talk a lot on the podcast about how to be mindful thrifters and how to be mindful donors of our used clothing. And what happens is oftentimes we we donate things that are on their last leg. We don't want it anymore. You'd mentioned like, you know, the paint on the shirt. This is why thrifters a lot of times will say things like, when they find something amazing, they'll say, who donated that? Or why would somebody get rid of that? Yeah. <laughs> and this is such an important piece of the puzzle. I don't know if you've read Secondhand by Adam Minter. He's a journalist. Yeah. So that I thought that was such a great book. And one of the things he said in the book was so eye-opening for me that one of the things that we can do is to donate you know, our nice quality, good items mm-hmm. that are good conditions. One of the things that my co-host said on the podcast is like so many of us are holding on to these beautiful pieces in our closets because they hold some type of sentimental value. We are too attached to them for absolutely no reason. And so they just sit there. And instead, what we donate is the stained stuff, the pilled stuff, the stuff that we no Mm. longer have any sort of attachment to. And this is an important piece of the puzzle because the better the quality, the more likelihood it's going to be sold locally. And if it doesn't get sold locally, then it'll be resold it'll have better, higher value to be resold in another market. I guess my question would be, what other ways can we be mindful donors? Yeah, thank you. It's interesting because the retailers here talk about that a lot. Like they they can't believe that the clothing they receive was donated because they donate clothes. A lot of them, you know, they go to church and they're sometimes asked for donations for their community and they donate things and they'll say, when I donate, I think of it as a gift. Like, this is a gift for someone. I will wash it. I will make sure it's nice. I will hold it. You know, I want it to bring joy to someone. In terms of other ways to be mindful donors, I mean, I love what you just said, just in terms of donating things that do have value to you, not using the secondhand clothing trade as your waste management system. Yeah. And also, I think... Again, simple things like making sure you wash it, making sure you've mended things. If there's a stain, like maybe you can embroider on top of it or you can um, over dye it before you donate it. You know, why make that someone else's job to do? Yeah. I, I... <laughs> and you might also fall in love with it again, you know, as, as you're doing that. And I know it's a hard ask, you know, people are busy, you know, not everyone has the privilege of having that time or having resources to do all of those things. Mm -hmm. But that's, again, why I think we need it from all sides. We need the donors to be taking a little bit more responsibility. And then we need the brands to invest in the secondhand economy so that these thrift stores and charities can have upcycling hubs and they can be dying things and repairing things and making sure that they have value. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I love what you said that it's a gift, right? That this donation is a gift and treat it as a gift instead of dumping it in a trash bag or a box with stains on it and it's out of sight, out of mind, it's no longer my problem. That's such a beautiful way of putting it. It is a gift and it could be a gift to somebody else. I and to- I think too, paying attention to the people who are working, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's another thing is people kind of hand off their donations and maybe don't get to know the people who are working there. And I think if you can volunteer, that's always good because then you get a firsthand experience of understanding yep. what's going on. Um, but also just 
being kind, like talking to the people who are working at the charity, working at the thrift store, like asking them questions about what they do, um, trying to build some sort of like human connection. Yep. Yeah. Really important. I told you I binge read your content. Okay. So I'm <laughs> doing, I'm quoting a lot of your content here, but this has stuck with me. I think this was on a post that you uh, posted about the H&M Take Back program. I believe so. But you said reduce comes before reuse and recycle for a reason. And I absolutely love that line. And although we promote secondhand shopping as a, you know, secondhand as a way of life on the podcast, one thing we constantly reiterate is the importance of thrifting what you actually need. That thrifting can absolutely become wasteful because just because it's a dollar, it means you could possibly end up with a basement full of things that cost a dollar, right? And so yeah. I, I I was wondering, you know, how can these how can this pattern of kind of reduce first fit into the global impact of the secondhand market? So I mean, we advocate for an eighty percent decrease in the amount of new clothing that's being produced generally, which <laughs> is a hard ask it's mm-hmm. not gonna happen without regulation and without some force i believe um but it's only by reducing the amount of excess that's flooding into the system that anyone brands governments individuals are going to invest in what already exists because as soon as we cut off the oversupply the things that currently exist will start to have more value and in terms of the consumer side, you know, something that we always recommend is that people, even if you buy everything secondhand, if you feel that, you know, maybe you are engaging in some kind of conspicuous consumption and mindless consumption, like taking a year off of buying anything and choosing five garments from your closet to form a new relationship with. So that could be that you take a garment and you swap it with someone or it could be that you find a local tailor and you have them resize it or maybe you learn to make natural dyes in your kitchen and out of your food base and you over dye something or you learn to mend something um and spend your time doing that because it's not because you know in a year if everyone does that even if everyone who listens to this or every citizen in the united states were to do that for a year okay maybe then it would have a real impact but it's it's not because it's going to impact the amount of waste but it's because psychologically i believe that we need that time to detox from the conditioning of the fast fashion trade because Fast fashion industry, you know, consumption is an artificial substitute for the things we really need as human beings, for the things we really crave. And the fashion industry has done such a good job of convincing you that you are lacking, that you are not enough again. And they've handed you shopping on a platter saying, entertain yourself, distract yourself from the things that are making you upset. Just shop, just spend money. And the delusion marketing is constant. Like we're bombarded with it nonstop. So I believe like, not that I think people are weak, but like I I think that we need to take a whole year and just say, I'm not going to buy anything new, even if it's secondhand, just to turn that off. Like just to develop the reflex of like not really paying attention anymore to that messaging that's coming across your screen. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it takes that long. And I love what you said about forming a new relationship with a handful of things in your closet. That's such a an easy thing to do. And I think I'm going to try to do that myself as well. I think that's a fun challenge, especially in the new year. You know, that's great. Yeah. A lot of different things come up, you know, because maybe you'll realize that there aren't a lot of resources in your community. You know, I where I live right now, there's not a cobbler like anywhere close. So I've taken shoes all the way to Ghana to have them like resold and fixed. Um, <laughs> so you start to see, you know, where are the gaps in my community? And, and that's also interesting for people. And then you also start to learn like, how much does a tailor charge per hour? And then how does that make me question how much I've paid for clothing in the past? And like, what does that mean for actually bringing the fashion industry back to the United States? Like, how much will a garment cost if this person made it from scratch? You know, it's just a lot will come up that, you know, will lead to new questions and new things to be curious about in terms of how the fashion industry works. Yeah, yeah. So you're working on several different initiatives right now. Um, one of them is the Secondhand Solidarity Fund. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So the Secondhand Solidarity Fund is essentially a mechanism for redistributing money to retailers, tailors, and TIA primarily. And that's in the form of crisis relief, debt relief, and then also some market rehabilitation or, um, you know, upfitting. And we've always had this fund internally. So, you know, we do a lot of speaking engagements or, um, you know, lectures and we don't have a specific rate or anything, but if we're paid for it, we always put that money directly into the community because we think that's extremely important because of course our knowledge is borrowed from the Consumanto community. And then also, mm-hmm there's a lot of privilege that comes into play for people who are have you know who can speak english who i have access to the internet to these tools to speak to you today i understand the industry in a way that can be legible to people from the global north and a lot of people who work in consumption don't have that even though they're the ones doing the actual work yeah and so it's not fair for us to be making money off of that or making any money off of the advocacy that we do from our perspective and so we've always had this fund internally but we've just recently made it public so that other people can contribute if they want to um, because I do think that forming solidarity and ensuring that we are redistributing money um, is one way that the secondhand economy globally can become truly sustainable. Because for me, you know, the, the debt crisis in Contamanto is the main issue. Because just as I said, like, Retailers in Contamanto, they're the ones with the best ideas about how to train, change this industry, but they don't have the peace of mind and the comfort to think about them. Like they don't, because they're in survival mode, yeah. they don't have the capacity to think about it, let alone share it. And so until we can take people out of debt, they're going to be trapped in a system that is exploiting them and a system that is creating waste. And so the debt relief is very, very important. 
And then the crisis relief comes in many forms. Sometimes that's, you know, we get around eight to 10 requests a week for um, people who maybe had an accident. They need their, you know, hospital bills paid for, um, uh, fires in the market. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, definitely, I'll link that in the show notes as well for people to uh, access. Thank you. Of course. So what's next for you all? Top of mind? What keeps you up at night? (laughs) (laughs) We're essentially working on three levels. So one is we have, we just opened a lab earlier this year called the No More Fast Fashion Lab. And that's where I'm talking to you right now. It's about 10 minutes from Consumanto. And here we are collecting some of the waste. We're buying it back from the retailers and we're trying to experiment with new product streams and new materials. We have a shredder. We're building a heat press. Everything is built, um, you know, as much locally as possible. Basically 90% of everything in the lab right now has been sourced within a two mile radius. And we're building every, all of the technology so that it fits within the market ecosystem. And Something that I, I like to talk about with the lab because I think it's important is that we're we're functioning on four month cycles. So every four months we choose a material type, but we treat a garment as a material type, and that's because you know 100% cotton t-shirt is very different from 100% cotton pair of jeans in terms of what it takes to disassemble it, and then also what you can do with it. And so the cycle we're in right now is t-shirts. So we're you know. We've made cushions, we've made new yardage, we're experimenting with fiberboard, we've done a lot of other like building materials, um, sound absorbers, things like that. That's fantastic. And the goal is to find, yeah, some, some solutions that could generate enough, enough revenue that it's worth, you know, supporting local entrepreneurs and taking those ideas forward. And then we also have a lot of programs with the CAIA, with the um, female headquarters to transport the bales through the market. And that's, you know, crisis relief, um, peer-to-peer mentorship programs, healthcare. Um, but then also we have a chiropractic research and treatment program, which we'll be mm-hmm. talking a lot more about in the coming months. And for that program, we partnered with a local chiropractor to study the, the physiological impacts of headquartering and that's been a really yeah sobering yeah um experience because these are young girls correct yeah they can be as young as eight typically they're 14 to 30 and the bales that they're carrying are 170 to 200 pounds it's their entire body weight or more yeah and it's yeah it's it's backbreaking work, which we're seeing, you know, in the x-rays and it can also be fatal because their necks break under the weight of the bales. And what we've seen in the x-rays is that, you know, sometimes the stress is so much that their bones are stretching, they're growing. And there was one woman a couple of weeks ago whose bones have grown so much they're pushing into her airway. And it's disrupting her ability to breathe and swallow. So most of the girls are migrants from northern Ghana, where there aren't a lot of opportunities 
and where there's increased desertification. So the farms that they're growing up on are struggling. Their families are struggling. So a lot of them come south to, you know, make money to send back home, maybe to pay for school fees, to save money to start their own life, but also mainly to support their families. And, you know, head carrying is very much romanticized, I think, everywhere um, as like a symbol of female strength. You know, you often see it on like a postcard, like a woman walking down a dirt road in Africa carrying something on her head and yeah, no one ever thinks to ask, you know, what does that feel like? Um, and right. of course it is, it's healthy to a certain degree, but honestly, like really only like 10 pounds, <laughs> nothing like what these women are carrying. And it's different if you're, you know, carrying a bucket of water once a day and it's not your job, but these women, it's, their job and they're doing it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. It's great work. So last question, are there any accounts on Instagram or websites that you recommend our listeners check out to learn more in addition to yours, of course, anybody um, that you're working with in Ghana or in the United States? Yeah. The slum studio is a really great account to follow on Instagram. It's a friend of ours, Cell, here in Ghana, who upcycles a lot of the, the textile waste, not the clothing waste, but textile like remnants, um, which is a whole other part of it, um, into new clothes. It's really beautiful. And he does a lot of um, like archival content and storytelling on Consumanto as well. And then who else? There's Another friend, D45, on Instagram, he um, upcycles a lot of the accessories from Contamanto, which, yeah, is really fun. Like, a lot of the glasses and things that people walk by and don't even, like, pay attention to. And he's developed, yeah, it's, like, a very unique and, like, high-touch process for turning those into really nice. Um, oh, and also in Ghana, there's the Revival. But they're also doing some upcycling from Consumanto. In the U.S., I guess this top of mind, I was just talking to someone from California Product Stewardship Council. <laughs> I don't know if anyone listening is in California, but they're doing really great work on the policy end. Mm -hmm. And they're focused a lot on how to give power and investment to the secondhand economy and not to brand um, within, you know, EPR policy and stuff. And yeah, just doing really hard yeah. work. Um, and I, I, it makes me really hopeful because of course in the United States, if something passes in California, we have a better <laughs> chance of passing it nationally. So definitely follow what they're doing. I don't know. They post on Instagram, but definitely check out their website as well. And they're releasing a report this week, I believe, about some of the, the work they've been doing over the last year. Awesome. Tell everybody where they can find the Or Foundation. Yes, yeah, so you can find us on Instagram at um, the Or is present, P-H-E-O-R-I-S-P-R-E-S-E-N-C. And on um, our website is just the or.org or deadwhitemansclothes.org. And the Secondhand Solidarity Fund is just solidarity.org. Great. 
Great. I'll link that all in the show notes. Liz, thank you so much. I could talk to you all day. Uh, you're just a wealth thank you of so knowledge. Much. I feel like I'm getting warmed up. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks to Realist.com for sponsoring today's episode. If this is the year when you want to launch an online shop, turn a hobby into something bigger, or maybe you're a brick and mortar store and you want to expand to include online sales, I definitely encourage you to check out Realist.com to learn more about how they can help you make that dream a reality, just like they helped me. Don't forget to use that code DINA for 30 days free and for 50% off of a printer and scanner combo. Head to Realist.com to learn more. And as always, thanks for listening to Thanks It's Thrifted podcast. I will be linking all of the links that we talked about with Liz today in the episode show notes. You can go to dinasdays.com slash podcast for more. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at thanksitsthrifted.pod. I am at dinasdays on Instagram as well as Facebook. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.